Welcome to the Salad Days Podcast, featuring interviews with your favorite artists talking about their musical origins and humble artistic beginnings. Join me, Dave Ulrich, as we travel back to the early days and we'll hang out for a bit. Our journey this week features our special guest, Stephen Lampke, an accomplished solo artist, member of the Constantines, co-founder of You Changed Records, and much, much more. Okay, this is a great conversation between two people who have a bunch of things in common, including running music festivals, playing bands. Uh, touring all over and uh, running labels and a bunch of other things. Uh, anyway, really good talk. And uh, I think we're both a couple of uh, pretty mild mannered people. Uh, and that is reflected, uh, I'd say, in our uh, in our um, conversational style. But uh, if you think it's mild mannered, make sure you stay till the very end to listen to uh, Stephen's song with his band Spider Bite. And then you will hear mild mannered energy. Go hardcore. Stay tuned. And here is Steven. That's awesome. We, yeah, we're, we're, we're touring together next month and in Europe, so they came down to see me, and we had a rehearsal and stuff, and they mentioned uh, that they had recorded the show with you, and cool, uh, cool. that you were interested in maybe talking to me, so... Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we'll start in with the uh, the first thing that I usually like to uh, cover is, you know, the point of uh, shared history or, or um, common common things that we've done, and, and, and uh, you know, I, I definitely think of which I talked a lot about uh, with um, Matthias as well, uh, and Ariel is the Lanya Vanya, uh, whenever that mm-hmm. was, 12 years ago, a long time ago. Uh, but that is definitely, uh, you know, a point of connection. I think that's the time that I met you. Uh, we never, uh, you know, I we never, we never had a chance to, uh, you know, tour with the Constantines. That was a different era uh, for sure for, for when we were uh, doing our thing. But uh, yeah. there is the other thing that I do, which is the, a uh, music festival called Sandbanks Music Festival. And the very first year, um, Bry Webb uh, was part of that, which was pretty cool. So that was a, a chance to see him and meet him. But we, we met at Lanya Vanya. And uh, t- as I said to those guys, it was, to me, that was opening up a whole world of of bands. A lot of people that I knew through uh, Zunior, um, you know, knowing their records or maybe meeting them by email, probably probably like yourself, but never had actually met or seen or, and all in one spot, all at one time. It was such a great weekend. Um, what are your memories of that of that year? Yeah, it was. Was that the year that it was really warm? Like, was it really nice when we were in St. John's? I was in both of the first two Lanyavanias. It was. It was really, really warm. You're right because yeah. I remember going out to they um, say Kitty Vitty. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I remember like I literally was in my t-shirt. You know. Yeah, so I remember I remember that distinctly um, because it's so unexpected in St. John's that time of year. Um, yeah, those guys, I mean, it was just such a great thing they were organizing. Uh, like, I, I felt very, you know, welcomed as an artist and very, um, very, I don't know, like, yeah, part of a community, I guess, like instantly there. Uh, which felt so great, and I love the 
the sort of walking tour kind of shows they would do in the afternoons at the different sort of places downtown or or going up to Kitty Vitty. So it's I I just remember thinking like you're getting introduced to like a place as well as as all the sort of fellow musicians in the audience and stuff like you're kind of getting toured through town um and that's that's a really i don't know it's a it's a it's a different way to think about a music festival i feel like you've got a lot of connection into a lot of people that were in that particular year uh, you know including the burning hell but were some of those connections in place before that event or did some of those things actually come out of Lanyavanya? because i know you've always been involved in everything with sappy fast and all that kind of that kind of side was there, were some of those connections uh, you know Direct. Yeah, pro- I mean, probably most of the people you're referring to, like I would have met before, and a lot of them would be through Sappy. Um, like I know in the conversation with Matthias and Ariel, you talked about BA Johnson a lot, and I definitely yeah. knew BA and had probably played with BA on my own stuff. Actually, I met BA in Peterborough. I think he was the promoter on one of the first Constantine shows in Peterborough at the Trashateria. So yeah, I knew him. I didn't know Wax before, Wax Mannequin. That would have been somebody that I was sort of meeting them for the first time. I don't honestly remember where I met the Burning Hell. Maybe in Dawson or something? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised it was. was yeah. Dawson. yeah. So a mix, definitely a mix of, of uh, you know, people that I knew and people that I didn't. And they were definitely connecting sort of their different interests and different communities that they had connections to. And um, that was really, yeah, really great. And then obviously all those lo- like local St. John stuff, like getting to meet like monster Bader or whoever. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we also, I recall we met at doing some of the, the panels, some of the music panels that were. Yeah, Totally. It's kind, of, kind of good uh, to add that in as well. A bit of music biz at an indie level kind of discussion, which is always much different than some kind of Canadian music kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And I've gotten more interested and maybe better at talking about that stuff. I have some regrets about that panel discussion if I, if I think too clearly about it. Oh, that's funny. Um, okay, well, let's let's set up the discussion uh, with the, just, just to set the place. So um, t- tell me... Uh, where you grew up and where you're joining from now. I grew up in Cambridge, Ontario, or just outside of Cambridge, Ontario, uh, which is about an hour west of Toronto, about halfway between Toronto and London. In the same kind of general region of the 401 is Kitchener-Waterloo and Guelph. Um, and I am currently in Sackville, New Brunswick. Cool. Okay, so the... Um... To sort of set the mood for, to try to, um, you know, it's about understanding the how and why you got into music. So yeah. to go back to high school era-ish, you know, maybe even younger, maybe 12, 13, to be, imagine if we were in your your house or where you grew up and uh, to imagine a Friday or Saturday night and what might be, what the smell might be in the kitchen, uh, you know, what's cooking, what's in the oven, uh, maybe even what's on TV. So, so what would you say to, to that uh, question? Well, my family was not a big, they weren't big on cooking exactly, like, or, or a very plain, very meat and potatoes kind of culinary experience that I, I grew up yeah. with. Uh, 
yes you know so uh yeah like pork chops and roasted potatoes or like a meatloaf or something like this you know would have been uh what my mom would have been making for sure uh if we're talking about like yeah 12 13 or whatever and yeah on the tv we never had like cable or anything so the tv was pretty limited uh but we could get city tv out of toronto which would show like you know late great movies which was yep. usually tremors i think <laughs> yeah like, yeah yeah like every other week it was tremors um which is cool you know the big sandworms it's pretty a pretty awesome movie as i remember <laughs> i haven't seen it in years uh, <laughs> Yeah, and then maybe some like late night, like Saturday Night Live, or uh, then you said Friday night, didn't you? You said Friday night. Yeah, Friday. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, you... I wouldn't watch Saturday Night Live on a Friday night, probably, but maybe like Letterman or something later on. You know, you, it's funny you mentioned City TV because um, I believe the, the before much music, I think Christopher Ward had a show called was it, was it uh, original version of city limits i think was a kind of like a later night show i think it was on city tv and it might have been one of the they might have been doing music videos and maybe even oddly if i got this right it might have been when the a recurring character on that show was mike myers wayne's world character does this, does this ring a bell i just popped it in my head now for some it reason it does not actually but that's not to say you're wrong but uh yeah no i don't remember that but definitely like the new music yes great show great show and like definitely like uh exposed me to lots of stuff and was like yeah kind of an introduction to like hearing like alternative music talked about or whatever you know um and i guess like fashion television too would do some kind of broader cultural stuff yeah um one of the things about um, city and city also had during the week they had Toronto Rocks, which was a weekday four o'clock show. That could have been a different era for you. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't remember that. But was was video hits on CBC? What was video? Yeah, hits? it was. Okay, yeah, yeah. So some of that that kind of stuff too, for sure. See, it's kind of interesting because if you didn't have if you didn't have um, cable or you didn't have the, the big cable package that allowed you to get much music and music plus, and you wanted you know, music video on TV, city TV had a, had a bunch of different venues for getting, getting that music to you. And, uh, something like new music is so important. I, I watched that show for years, just yeah, learned so much cool. about, you know, this is like pre-internet. If you wanted to learn about music, that was a great way to do it. Yeah. And like we would tape videos or tape new music segments and stuff sometimes with the VHS and, and like sort of have that like archive of, of stuff you could watch because yeah it would only come on once or twice you know um so if you wanted access to it after that you'd, yeah you'd have to tape it <laughs> actively. oh for sure yeah um so so going you know going back to your house talk just get a sense of uh, uh your family did you have brothers and sisters and uh what was what was it what was it like in the house yeah my, i have an older brother uh four years older than me so he was definitely like my access point to a lot of music uh for sure and like definitely access to music of beyond the the stuff we're discussing that was on city tv or whatever like he was into bmx riding like like sort of street and like half pipe bmx riding which was pretty much like adjacent to skateboarding or whatever so a lot of the same music and influences and stuff there 
So he was definitely like how I first heard, like, yeah, any anything beyond like the what was on the radio or what was beyond might be talked about on city TV or whatever. Did he play anything, any instruments? A little bit. He had a guitar. Like I think he had a guitar before me, but it was never it was never really his thing until like probably a about four or five years ago, <laughs> now he calls me up and wants to talk about his band all really? the time. But That's yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, he kind of started like he always dabbled, but never played in a band. Like never, I don't think he had ever played a show in a band until he was in his mid forties. You know, um, wow, late bloomer. He's, he's really into it now. You should have him on the show. He'd love to. <laughs> his early days in the in the you know 2015 or whatever wow um i think he started playing again like with his kids basically you know like the kids were playing music and stuff and then like he just kind of got super into it and then started playing with a bunch of other middle-aged guys in like skate punk bands (laughs) see i I was like that with actual skating i never learned believe it or not a canadian kid i never learned how to skate and uh, when my my kids were learning that was my excuse to try to learn so but it's it's pretty pretty weird to see a, a grown a grown man sliding around. I did take some lessons, but it was not easy, you know. I mean, yeah, I skated a little bit as a kid, but I like I was never in hockey or anything like that. So I, uh, and I haven't skated in years. So what, so what was the what was the point where you had got actually got some kind of uh, instrument? Do you remember what was your first piece of musical gear that you had access to? The first one I would have had access to was a weird like kind of homemade kind of guitar that my brother got somehow i don't remember he traded something for it maybe or i don't know somebody owed him money and gave him the guitar instead or something yeah. i don't actually know the story of it uh, but like i my first guitar was a, a white vantage electric guitar uh don't remember the the make and model but or the the model rather it was it was a pretty bad instrument and some kind of weird little practice amp that uh, I think it was maybe a birthday gift, but I was asking for, you know, I wanted, I wanted to play guitar. And I think it was probably like, yeah, I might've been 13, 12, 13, something like that. I had friends that had like acoustic guitars and stuff around and we were starting to, to, you know, play around and be interested in that. But we were also seeing like, you know, Neil Young on, on you know playing Weld or whatever, and like all the strings breaking yeah. off and being like, yeah, yeah. that's cool. <laughs> like, look, he just broke all the strings on the guitar, and it sounds crazy. I just I started with guitar and um, and kind of because there was drums in the house, uh, that's where I kind of went to. But uh, it, uh, you know, the there's nothing like having some kind of. Uh, you know, somebody to play with and you're, you're in your early years, whether that's a family member and the, you know, on one of the, the first conversation that I had for this podcast was with the, the Gillis sisters, you know, and they, and they grew up together playing together um, in, you know, becoming plum tree. And, and it, it's like to have that ability every day to have somebody to play with is pretty cool if you have a sibling. And then, you know, another scenario is you might just have, like in my case was really a bunch of just kind of bunch of guys from school and none of us, None of us had uh, any kind of lessons or anything. We just would every Sunday get together and just try to learn, you know, 20% of a Stone song or of a U2 song or 
REM or whatever it was and, and kind of never really finish and just, you know, mess around with these riffs. Uh, but it was consistent pretty much, you know, for a bunch of years. Um, and then that grew into this, this band that became kind of a precursor to the, to the inbreds. So did you have anybody you were playing with at that time that was, you know, consistent, like kind of almost like pre music, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I like I was in bands with Dallas Worley, like who was in the Con- the Constantines with me. Like we were in the Constantines together. Like I was always in bands with Dallas. Like we met. I was probably in grade nine or ten, and Dallas is a year older than me. And we always played. I can't even remember how we met, to be honest. But like all the early terrible bands, like was the both of us, um, and then also Vish uh, Vishkana from the creative control pod podcast was another high school friend and we were in bands together. Um, and then like a, you know, a few other people who didn't really stick around in music so much, but, um, yeah, there was like a little group of us and like my parents were not, uh, like they weren't arts people at all. Like there wasn't a lot of music or, or books or anything like that in the house. And like, they totally did not get what, we were all doing or whatever. But they were really supportive in the sense of like letting us make a racket in the house. Like my mom would just be downstairs watching TV somehow. And we would be up in the tiny little like sort of spare bedroom space, like playing drums and guitars and stuff. It just baffles my mind that they let this happen. Um, But they did. And that was really cool. So um, yeah, we played totally regularly and usually at my house like so that was cool i didn't i never really played with my older brother like i think he's just that much older and you know four years is a lot when you're a teenager so yes yeah but yeah definitely like the group of friends like including dallas and Vish and yeah like a few other people so yeah okay well this yeah. this could be a pretty good setup actually to go to again the conversation has four parts and we like to have a uh an embryonic track and you sent a really good one and so uh this uh, like the title i'm going to say is unknown but the band is captain copilot and that you just mentioned the names of the people in it which is dallas and vish yeah uh, you know recorded by jim guthrie and james uh uh ogilvy right is that right yeah, yeah. that's very cool captain copilot and um the, the only thing i'd say leading into this is that uh you know i grew up in oshawa you just mentioned the kind of music that was maybe in, in your house or whatever. One thing I can say about uh, Oshawa, I don't, I don't, I never felt like there was real access to what I would call maybe hardcore or uh, maybe more authentic punk. And some of the things that I grew to love from discord and other things, but I felt like I didn't never really had access to, to maybe something like, I think kind of music you were doing here. That was just a bit of a setup to say that uh, we'll talk about it after, but uh, Here's the song Unknown by Captain Copilot.
Okay, that was Captain Copilot and uh, highly energetic. Uh, like like I said, I I I would have loved to be able to experience something like that uh, when I was in high school, and I don't really think there was a lot of that around, unless I just was not paying attention. But uh, tell us a bit about Captain Copilot. Yeah, first of all, I should say that it's not so much that the song is called Unknown, it's that it's it's untitled, and the, the file that I sent you was titled Unknown. Right, yeah, good um, point, good point. Um, yeah, we, we, we can name it right now, and we'll make, we'll make yeah, it so, I don't know. We could take uh, take suggestions. Yeah, definitely, like, the punk punk stuff, like, was my entry point to that was definitely my older brother. Like, he uh, had moved away to school and, like met people that were putting on hardcore shows or playing in hardcore bands and stuff. So like as a pretty young kid, like I was taken along to some of that stuff and, and bringing my friends along too. So yeah, hearing, I mean, I had heard Fugazi before that. My brother had that sort of through like the BMX skateboard kind of stuff. Like we'd heard some of that stuff, but in terms of actually seeing some of these bands and like hearing Shotmaker or whoever, like, that there was actually people sort of in the broader area doing this stuff like um was yeah that was when my brother went to university uh and definitely that stuff was an influence for sure like um like obviously musically but just that like experientially i would say like just as much you know and almost like the the sort of tangible like diy qualities of it you know was just as impactful as the sonics you know of it yeah let's talk a bit about the actual mechanics of the track first question is um who who is singing that one's mostly me and then the the part where we're all screaming that's all of us screaming okay (laughs) for sure Uh, where where would you be recording that kind of thing where yeah, like is is that a straight four track or is that in? Did you have access to some? It was at it was at Jim Guthrie and James Ogilvie's house, which was like they were doing like the home rock kind of home studio okay. stuff. Okay. Uh, I think it might have been to some kind of like a dad or something, but I don't actually remember. We were in the so, basement and they were upstairs in like a closet or something engineering. Right, right. So, uh, but literally, maybe just live off the floor. Like that's no overdubs. Thing. I yeah, think okay. we might have done the vocals after, but we would have all been playing together for sure, for sure. Um, I think we sang it after. I think we played it instrumentally and sang it after, if I remember correctly. We did like a ten or twelve song session, and. But it was kind of one of those things, like, by the time we finished the recording, like, we were basically not a band anymore. Right, um, right. You know, our, our big sort of two-day session, <laughs> you know? Do, I mean, and when you, but when you get a chance to record something like that, there's often, a, like, maybe it never meets the goal, but you, your goal is to do something with it, maybe deliver it to a college radio station or impress totally. your friends. Like, what was, the, what was the goal with that tape, do you think? I mean, I think, like, probably, like, the most like aspirational goal would have been to make like a seven inch or something you know like that's what the hardcore bands that we were seeing were making like vinyl at the time no one else was uh this is definitely like pre-vinyl renaissance but the hardcore bands were making vinyl but like i said by the time we actually recorded the stuff like 
we weren't really a band anymore. So that's why, like, it never, it's, it was never properly mixed. Like, what we're listening to there is, like, the bounce at the end of the day kind of mix, you know? Um, is there something that you hear in that track that, of your own playing or of your own singing composition that kind of alludes to where things go, you know, in the future? <laughs> I mean, yes, because it's my life, you know, and it's like that was an earlier part of my life, but I don't know how to, like, enumerate it, really. The lyrical sort of content, like, I hear myself striving to, like, say something meaningful, you know, uh, and I think that's, like, I do still, like, aspire to say something, like, worth saying, you know? <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. I hope that I have like a lighter touch with it now or like a, a maybe more, you know, maybe I have more to say now. I don't know. Um, but I actually kind of admire that like about it. Like it's, it's very clumsy, you know, and a clumsy first attempt, but I do sort of appreciate its sincerity. Like that doesn't make me, uh, uncomfortable at all. Um, well, it's it's maybe part of it. What I'm thinking about too is the idea that, um, you know, as you you know, Constantine's as a band in terms of it's, it really is such a big sound that you you had. Yeah. Maybe even I don't even maybe particularly on your later records or even just even the visuals of the, I was never lucky enough to see you guys live, oh. but the, you know, you guys were very big for you know you you've. I've not. I've just met you and Brian. You, you both strike me as, um, you know, you guys are, you know, you're not uh, rock stars. Do you know what I mean? They don't. You don't strike me as as that. And I think musically, you both went into kind of a, um, you know, acoustic treatments or things like that. Whereas the Constantines really was, to me, it had just so much power uh, in that music, and and maybe that power element is related. You know, you could see some of that coming out of what we just listened to. But I just wonder what your thoughts are as, as it relates to, you know, maybe what you're doing now and, and what you did do in the Constantines. I mean, I think I would push back a little bit on the word power, but just because power is like has so many like political, like negative connotations to me. Okay. Like, yeah. Social negative ne uh, negativities. I would like say like energy for sure. Okay. Um, I would be more comfortable if we talked about energy rather than power. Um, I have a pretty, like, I I obviously can't speak for Bri. I have a pretty, like, love-hate relationship with loud music at this point, to be totally candid. Like, yeah, I, I can totally still feel it in myself and feel, like, the excitement that good loud music makes, you know, 100%. But, like the lack of listening that's involved in the making of a lot of that music, I find very problematic in terms of how I've come to think about making music. So, uh, you know, like if you're struggling so hard on stage to hear each other or to hear yourself or to hear like anything, like, like I feel like we're failing, you know? And yeah. There was actually a lot of experiences like that, like in the Constantines. Like the outward energy is so amazing. Like that band had that band had incredible chemistry for sure. And I like it's it was such a it's such an important part of my life for sure and like gave me experiences like I would have never imagined, you know. But 
like it's just it is fairly different than how I think about music now. Even if I make music that sounds loud now, like I just want to be able to hear. Like I want to be able to hear the other musicians properly, and I want to be able to hear the room we're in, and uh, like feel like actually present in the moment. You know, and some of it, like it's just so loud. You're just trying to do your like do the thing, and you can't really. You know, does this make any sense? Oh, no, it does. It does. Uh, that's what I, it's so interesting. The, the, the sort of dichotomy of, you know, the, the changes, right? The change between what we just listened to and how I understand the sound of the Constantines and then t- to what you're doing now. It's just interesting to understand how that, that kind of flow went. Like, so for example, when, when the, the band uh, Constantines as, you know, as uh, say friends or your very earliest get togethers, what, what, what was the kind of music that was your common bond? Would you say at that time, was it something more, um, you know, the Constantines? Yeah. Yeah. What was the common bond? Do you think? Well, we definitely all were coming from that same kind of scene, like that same hardcore post hardcore scene. And like, um, Doug and Brian were in a band called shoulder, uh, that we like in captain co-pilot, like we loved, going to see shoulder play like they were like maybe a year older than us or kind of our age but they played more shows than us and like they were like in a way like a local-ish band they were in london but like a band in the area that like we looked up to for sure um and had made a record and like made a seven inch and like all that kind of stuff so we're definitely like all coming from that same like basic like southern ontario diy hardcore post-hardcore kind of thing um so there was a shared language for sure, but we were also like Dallas and I are from Cambridge, Brian Duggar from London. Like, I think it's unavoidable that like a lot of our lives were like taken over by like classic rock radio. You know? Right. Sure. Sure. So like, I think like that there was a bit of a shared acknowledgement that like some of that stuff's okay at the time, you know, that was so like, the Stones or Zeppelin or like ACDC or Springsteen or whatever, like that stuff. Like we also did like that. Like we weren't, we embraced that stuff a little bit more than like, and and sort of shared a bit of an embrace or an interest in that stuff and seeing how that music could maybe fit in like, or how it sort of spoke to like our actual like real environment, you know, um it it makes me think of um you know uh just just the one kind of goofy story but we you know we the inbreds were not a, a you know we're not a punk band but definitely um uh, around that time i i personally was very influenced by really everything that discord was doing and yeah. just a lot of diy culture um this would be you know um this would be like early mid nineties stuff. And there was a funny story where this is like a, I'm going to segue to the next section of this conversation, which is called uh, music becoming real. And uh, this music may have become real this, this one night where we were doing a lot of shows. Like we came up definitely doing like, you know, playing live, like a lot at a lot, like up and down um, the sort of 401 circuit in Ontario playing clubs, Windsor, London, Ottawa, Montreal, and just doing it like constantly every weekend for a couple of years. And there was one point 
uh, we got a chance to play, I believe it was our very first show in New York. And it was just, we drove down for like a, pretty much a single show. It was completely pointless in hindsight, but we were just so blown away to be down there. And because we were still working jobs, it meant that we had to drive, you know, all the way down from Kingston and then back up. And I believe we, Mike was working at a rental place. And so those were the vehicles that we were using. And so he had a shift the next day. So we actually, I believe, played the show, drove all the way back and got Mike to the, I think it was, I think it, you know, back to the parking lot or whatever, you know, by 5 a.m. And then he would just sleep in the car, um, you know, until, until the, the boss would come at 7 a.m. And, you know, that, so again, we weren't a punk band, but I think a lot of the things that we did were kind of influenced and maybe the ethos was from a lot of that stuff. And I know, you know, we did have some connections into Guelph again from a different era than you guys, but, uh, you know, when three gut came along, I was just starting junior and, uh, I could just instantly feel the, um, the, you know, it was the right, it was just the right thing coming out there. And, uh, it, it felt like a lot of Canadian music in my sense kind of petered out at the end of the nineties. And, uh, to me, the symbol of the rebirth in my, my world was three gut. So the question is, um, as you're starting, you're coming out of bands like we just listened to and you're getting out of the Constantines. Was there, what was the point where you go from just kind of, like you said, you did those recordings and you weren't sure if anything was going to come of it. Where you're now playing in this band and you're doing gigs and, and, and maybe some early touring. What was, the, if you look back, what's the point where you do think that you said to yourself, this is becoming real? Yeah, I don't, I wonder, eh? Like, I don't know, I don't, it felt step by step, to be really honest. Like, yeah. um, the cons played quite a lot before we made a record or recorded or d- before the record came out, the first record, like, and we were getting, like, good responses. And if, like, it definitely musically felt real, like, pretty early, you know? Um in terms of like actual like outside acknowledgement or like feasibility. One big one too is when you quit your day, you quit your day job or trying to quit your day job. I mean, I was working at soundscapes in Toronto, the records at the like CD shop, Uh, which which is much, much. I went to school with Greg, if you can believe that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great guy. So I, like, Greg was so supportive of, you know, music, like, local music in general, and, like, a lot of us on staff were coming and going and playing in bands and stuff. So um, I I did not quit there until, like, the tour for the release of Tournament of Hearts, which was our third record. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was sort of, like, and then I kind of tried to live without a day job for a while, you know, partially yeah. successfully, partially not successfully. But, um, yeah, so there are steps along the way, you know, I don't know. I think it became real for my parents when we got nominated for a Juno. That's you know, a good one. On the That's first a good record. One. But like, I don't think any of us in the band really thought one, one way or another about that. You know, we didn't go to the, ceremony i forget where it was but it was it just sort of seemed out of reach and not our thing and whatever um 
But I mean, one thing that, you have signed to Sub Pop on the second record, so like yes. that made it seem real. We we had to look at a contract and have to have a lawyer and stuff. Like that felt real in a bad way, kind of. Though that you know that relationship with Sub Pop was great. Like that it was just sort of intimidating having to go through those like formal steps at first, you know? Um, yeah, no, no, that's one thing that we have in common is, um, and I'm interested a bit in is just your, you know, like from the ground up doing a bunch of things. I recall you guys doing records where you were, which was some of the first ones where you were actually like cutting the cardboard yourself and stamping it and, and all that kind yeah, of thing. Like absolutely. we did that with our first cassettes. They were all, I hand cut them. I even opened the cassettes, uh, each one. And if it was 22 minutes of music, I would actually cut the tape and okay. put it back in so that you could, so it flip over properly. So if you hit yeah. the end of the five songs, you get the five songs. Like it was totally hands-on. And I know you guys were doing the same thing at a certain point, but then you did have a record deal. We, we also had connections. We did not sign with sub pop, but we, they were, um, you know, we met, uh, Jonathan Poneman and, uh, Joyce Linhan, some of the characters that may have still been around when you were there. Uh, and then we did the kind of a, a major thing, um, you know, when you guys had arts and crafts, I'm, I'm kind of interested in your, your, uh, you know, look, looking back on it, those couple of steps now that you now, you know, you have your own, of course you have your own label and you've done that for a long time. Um, what, when you look back on it, what are your, what are your thoughts about the, the changes? Yeah. I mean, ultimately it comes down to the people, right? Like the people that you're working with and like, three gut was fantastic because of Lisa, you know, and because of Lisa and Tyler in the early days, like, and like I said, the relationship with sub pop was great because our main contact there, Chris Jacobs was amazing. You know, um, I mean, everybody at sub pop actually was pretty cool and really nice. Like we didn't have any weirdness there. Like I said, it was just intimidating at the beginning. Cause it was like all new to have to like look at contracts and stuff, but like, They, there's like pros and cons to all that stuff, but like if if the relation if it is based on relationships, then um, it seems like that's a good a good base, you know, a good solid base. Uh, then, then or now, it's another question I wanted to ask you in particular. Uh, is is how did you how do you feel or did you feel about government funding uh, as it relates to music? For example, you know, I was personally very influenced again by like the discord thing and the idea of um, not taking government funding in really any form as much as possible. And then one person that I talked to uh, was uh, Lloyd from outside music. He had this theory that in, uh, I believe it was Lloyd that in Canada, you know, we have like in Canada, we have, we pay taxes and there's arts funding, but in the States there's no taxes and there's no arts funding mm -hmm. and it's like a doggy dog kind of thing. Like, whereas, so it's, a, it's kind of a different world. What are, what are your thoughts then and now at particular as it relates to record labels? I mean, the thought then to be honest, would have just been like, that's stupid. You know, <laughs> like we didn't, the cons didn't really participate in that much until like quite late. Like definitely by the time we were in arts and crafts, like there was lots of grants and stuff going around, but like, yeah through most of like the three gut years like i think we got a couple showcase grants to go to like south by southwest or whatever but like it wasn't the main thing like at all i think the systems were like 
they're a lot more developed now, I think. So I think part of it was just like that they weren't really as like an artist, I was pretty like negative and cynical about them for a while in the sense of like and I think this is still kind of, kind of accurate, like my criticism being like, oh like the the way a grant is formed it organizes like your activity. So yeah. you're already giving away a certain amount of agency because you're conceiving of your grant and like you're conceiving of your project in a certain way to apply for the grant. And then you're making the record when you've been approved for funding. And that might be four months from now, you know, and like, so like it's organizing like your activity in a way that like kind of can seem invisible if you're not thinking about it. And I was always like, oh, I want to make the record now, you know, <laughs> like I don't want to yeah. wait four months. Yeah, let's go, I, you know. I don't want to have somebody like, I don't want to be waiting for someone's approval, yeah. you know, which also ties into the fact that I run my own record label now, like that same idea. Like I don't want to have to shop a record around. Like it's a nightmare scenario for me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I want to make a record. I want to like, and I want to do it now. So like definitely then like those impulses were dominant for sure so fairly negative about grants in a way you know the few times we got them i like it wasn't like oh we suck now or like it wasn't like that at all but like yeah um it was not a central thing at all at all well you know sort of a related a related then and now question then would be um because also again something i think we have in common is the amount of touring that we did Mm -hmm. what are your what's your feelings about touring then basically did you like it as a as a as an activity was it you know or was it torture and maybe now or in recent years you know like uh, what's what's your feeling personally on touring yeah i mean i guess to finish off the grant thing first like now like the label gets lots of grants you know so like i'm fully like we're in it but i don't i still don't want it to be like the definitive central organizing principle. You know, I want to do the projects I want to do and work with the people we want to work with. And if we can get money, that's great. You know, so we do apply for a lot of things through factor. Like I've been involved with funding through Canada council, like provincial funding, like all that stuff. So I do use that stuff now just to, just to sort of finish the the then and now element of that conversation. Um, But for touring, like I like, I think I mostly really liked it, but then I also do remember being really miserable and unhealthy a lot. So I don't know. Yes. Yes. Um, and I guess kind of the same, I don't tour, like I don't, I still tour a little bit and I have the longest tour I've done in years coming up next month. But like, uh, I don't tour like we did in sort of 2003, four, five, six, whatever, you know, like we were just, the Constantines were doing so much touring and it's a high energy band and it's like, it was, it, it took its toll for sure. Um, I like going places, I like going places with a purpose, you know, and I like meeting people under like the sort of parameters of like, Hey, we're here to do the show or whatever, you know, and like, that's why we're in this town. And then people kind of react, interact with you in a certain way. And that's cool. Like, I like that. Like it gives you a sense of why you're there and it, gives you access to different kinds of conversations or something. So that element of touring is incredible. 
getting to practice your thing every day, you know, it's yes. amazing. Yes. And, and did you, I mean, of the tours that you did, um, was there, you know, some memorable, like any, any one band that you went out with that was just the best? Uh, I mean, we toured with the Weaker Thans a lot, who were fantastic, obviously. We toured with a band called Oneida from the States. Yeah, uh, yeah. They were incredible. Like, definitely musically influenced us a lot when we first met them, just because they were so, like, expansive and so, like, so dialed into a very particular energy and, like, kind of showed us how to do certain things, I would say, like, with like repetition and with just like push, just push, 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 push. Let's see, see where you end up kind of thing. Like um, they loosened us up in that way for sure. Um, we were big fans of Royal City. Like that's how we connected with Three God and like, yeah, you know, and that group like with Aaron and Jim and, and Simon and Nate, like, I don't know, they, they, access some really cool things and like we're really connecting some cool things like doing a pretty sparse like folk thing but then doing like Iggy Pop covers you know and screaming on stage and like it was a cool mix of stuff um I'm just kind of thinking through my head of like bands we played with like a lot you know and um and like yeah people we made like actual relationships and friendships and stuff with because was it you know there was, there's that point where you go from getting opportunities opening up for for people and these days music festivals is way more of a and we'll talk about that but way more of a thing i think today even than it was you know 20 20 years ago mm-hmm. uh, but there's that when you transition to doing your own shows and or being able to bring somebody out with you like oh an, op- an opener or a uh, you know, co-headliner or something. It's yeah. such a big deal to be, do your first Lee's palace show or something like that. Totally. Um, totally. You know, do, do you remember particularly in Toronto? What was the, what was that show or, you know, it, you know, it was your own headlining show and you were like, this is, this, this is just so great. You know, I do remember like, uh, I don't think it was the first time we played Lee's palace, but it was probably the first time we sold out Lee's palace. Like, a show which I think was maybe the release show for like an EP that we did, a three song EP that came out between the first and second record came out on a, a label out of the States called suicide squeeze. And I think the show was a release show for that. And it was just crazy. The energy was just mm-hmm. totally, totally crazy and awesome. Um, and was there any, you know, um, as you were coming up and maybe in the entire time, maybe even through the, through the, the cons into what you're doing now, did you ever have one person that was uh, like a guiding light or a mentor or somebody that was really helping you through some of the trickier parts of, because you, you really did do so many elements of, uh, you know, becoming bigger and doing more opportunities. Did you have anyone that was, that was kind of, was able to sort of guide you a little bit? I don't, I don't, like, I wish I had, like, one singular mentor like that that I could point to. I I honestly don't feel like I do, but, like, that sounds like, in the sense of, like, I think there's a lot of people sort of sort of credit for for that. Like, I do think, like, working with Lisa at 3GUT was pretty formative, for sure. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm still in touch with Lisa, but I don't talk to her, like, super regularly. 
you want you, you almost wonder where if you can find a mentor i i encourage you to do it though you know yes is, you know did you have somebody like that i'd say for us it was uh dave clark dave from the rheostatics mm-hmm. um and he, because he produced a couple of our albums and but it was more than that there was all these things that many little little touch points through the years and maybe even into today uh where he's just kind of always there and if you wanted to and he's he's I think played versions of that role for a lot of people, but um, we were probably the, you know, maybe one of the, like when he was just getting into doing things like producing and, and kind of breaking out of the rheostatics world, we were probably one of the first, you know, points of connection and we were so lucky to have him. And there's just, you know, like I said, little, little Dave Clarkisms that you, yeah, you know, cool. you remember and I have remembered to this day, like the, and a good example, the classic one is that, is that, whenever you play a show with other, a multi-band bill, you know, don't leave. You know what I mean? Like watch the bands. If you can talk to the bands, talk to people that you like and respect. Uh, he just had, you know, again, wear earplugs. He just had really practical things. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. I mean, this has been newer than the era we're talking about, but I feel like I look up to Julie Dwara and like that, you know, kind of relationship with Julie, you know, like where we have like a legitimate close friendship, but also like, I do look up to Julia as someone that's like found her path through like a lot of different circumstances and a lot of different like parts of life, you know, while, while making amazing music throughout. I was, I was thinking about Julia the other day because, um, well, one reason was that amazing, I like I told you that amazing clip you have of, uh, of, you know, a bunch of your bands, Daniel Romano and Julia and everybody down at set by Southwest, the clip you have up on your site. Um, funny, good stuff, but I first really met uh, Julie uh, back in the day when we uh, were on the, another roadside attraction uh, tour for the Tragically Hip, and it was us and then Eric's trip. Mm-hmm. And the cool part of those shows was that because we played early, uh, it was of whatever eight bands. It meant that you would get your playing done by like one o'clock, and then you have the entire day to kind of hang out, watch the bands, there was food, all this kind of good stuff. But the people that um, that I was probably hanging out with the most at that time. Julie was definitely one of them. And, and just, you know, looking back, one thing that I remember at the time, but was the idea that she had just, you know, she had just had a, a baby, right? Yeah. Um, not that long after that time, this would be uh, 95. And I remember thinking, wow, you play in a band, you know, you, you, uh, you've got a family, you've got all this stuff going on. And, and that has continued, you know, to this day, really that, and even, uh, just the amount of art and activity that she's done over the years is it's, it's mind blowing, you know. It's totally mind blowing, and she's just like the kindest person and also incredibly insightful person. Um, yeah, so I mean, she, like, I actually like learn like like you just mentioned Dan. It's like Dan's younger than me, but I feel like I've learned a lot from Dan. So it's like. I I do think like I've learned a lot from like a lot of different people in different relationships, you know? Um, so it's, yeah, like I don't, I didn't want to give the impression with my answer. Like, no, nah, man, I didn't learn from nobody. <laughs> like, no, no, no. I, 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 it's a question I like to ask sometimes just to find out if it, most people say what you said, um, mm-hmm. you know, meaning like it is tends to be a, a grouping of people, but uh, so, you know, one, maybe one common theme and, and Julie could be a good example of that uh, is that, is that it's not even that it's one person, but it's somebody that you stay in touch with over a long period of time. And maybe that's yeah. multiple people. And that's the key, you know, keeping those relationships that are the kind of relationships that you want. You want to have uh, some 
you know, sounding board kind of little pieces of guidance here and there. That's always good to, uh, yeah, to make totally. for a fulfilling life in music if you can't help it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like, yeah, like, like I said, like I didn't, I met Julie sort of in the mid two thousands, probably like I had seen Eric's trip when I was young and like had seen Julie play and whatever, but like, I'm pretty sure I met Julie for the first time when she was playing in shotgun and Jaybird. Yes. You know? Um, and we had met Fred from that band originally, like up in Dawson the first time we were up there had just met, missed Jimmy. And then we met those guys like when next time we came out East on tour and like Julie was playing in their band and the band was really cool. And we had them on tour with us a bunch of times and stuff. So that, yeah, that those relationships start started kind of, yeah, in the mid two thousands for me and, Julie was mean. Julie's like everyone has that starstruck. You mean Julie for the first time kind of yes. story, but then yes. she was like, she's like the most down to earth like person who's gonna, you know, crack you up with like the intimacy of what she'll reveal in the first couple seconds of me. See now, okay now, Ju- Julie and Sappy. This is a good. This is a good segue to sure, move yeah. to the to the to the final section of the conversation, which I call flash forward. So we're going to zoom up to today. And one of the things that um, you and I have in common and it connects with Julie is that, you know, when, when Julie started her Sappy Records, uh, we put out, we did, I, remember, I still remember talking, this was, I think, probably after that tour, talking to her on the phone and we ended up doing a seven inch on Sappy um, at Dan Breads. It's a long time ago. Yeah. And then, you know, Sappy grew into, um, a bunch of things, but one of them is Sappy Fest. And then, you know, you, you have, um, were involved with Sappy Fest for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and then in my case, flashing forward, you know, I was in the inbreds and then I started a thing called Zunior. And then there was like sort of like a label with a Zunior and you, you know, you kind of have a label and you played in a band and then you were involved in a music fest. And then I started a bunch of music festivals, um, in Prince Edward County. And as I told, um, uh, the burning hell i said you know i was so inspired specifically by sappy fest or sorry by um uh, i'm leading into it there uh, uh, by uh, lanya vanya and i never had a chance to get to sappy fest and i have i have some east coast family connections i it's almost happened a couple times i've never actually been and one other additional funny connection point is that i correct me if i'm wrong on this but i believe at sappy fest ba johnson used to play but then he also used to sell sausages and i don't know if that's true that's, that's what i was told that he s- would actually sell food there he did he did at least one year he might have done that a couple years but yeah he used to play regularly like in the early years a lot of a lot i just of when i thought of him doing this the sausage thing uh yeah. i thought of like i now do this lemonade thing and so i always thought of and, and at my music festival so i just thought it was funny to think of yeah. ba selling whatever and me selling lemonade and but the fact that you and i have done those three things together yeah, you know, a, a touring band, music festival, and a, a label. Um, flashing forward to today, talk a bit about some of the things that you're doing in the last, you know, year and, you know, your your current life. Yeah, so still, I'm not involved with Sappy anymore. Like in any uh, official capacity, I will probably volunteer again, like during the weekend, which is what I did last yep. year um, yep. and performed last year, but. Um, yeah, not involved organizationally at this point anymore. Uh, but I'm still doing You've Changed Records, which 
the last few years have been so busy. I've been totally crazy. There were so many projects, so many records coming out. That's great. It was really great. This year is really slow, uh, just in terms of like releases, uh, which has some pros and cons. Like it feels a little bit weird after being so busy, but it's just sort of like the natural ebb and flow of like, oh, the people I'm working with are in, in between albums or people are back to touring now. So like that takes up time, you know? So maybe records are slowing down a little bit. Uh, but it's also great. And that's given me a chance to sort of catch up on some things and like, it's just, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to just feel like, oh, this is just the natural kind of flow, you know, of, and there is a few records, so it's like it's not it's not that there's nothing happening, but it's just slower. Like last year, I think we did six full lengths or seven full lengths or something, and this year there's going to be one or two. D- Daniel alone is very prolific. Am I right? Daniel's very prolific. One of the things <laughs> I do uh, admire about him, he's I mean, amazing. His work yeah. ethic is crazy. Like he's yeah, yeah, he is a dedicated, serious artist. Um, but yeah, no, there's just been a lot and. The last few years have been like that, and it's been really exciting, but it was hard to sort of keep up with because the label is pretty much just me on like a day-to-day basis. So, um, yeah. But so, yeah, still doing that, and that's in a good spot despite like the relatively, relatively light release schedule this year. You know, one, one juncture that I would uh, talk about here with you because I know you, you know, as you said, it's a one man, you just said one man show. So <laughs> over, over the years with my Zunior, uh, digital store, it's, yeah. there have been some people that have helped, but it's pretty much, you know, um, a lot of the time it's been me. Yeah. And one thing I would comment on, this is me kind of speaking to myself in front of you, knowing you know what I'm talking about. Uh, when you're doing a one man show, you got to have a, you got to have a model that is going to be executable with that one person. So what I what I mean in my case is I had this idea to do a digital store. This was almost I think it was maybe even before iTunes. But the key was that it had to be I knew like flipping from the back of the book first, I knew it had to be something that more or less I could do with myself or one or two people. So I developed this kind of very simple framework for uploading zip files and having a website and, and having payments and all this kind of stuff. And it, it was really great for the time because it allowed a lot of people that couldn't either couldn't get onto iTunes, uh, allowed a way to sell that music. And that went on for a bunch of years and it got bigger and bigger and it was great. And it's still going today. But along the line, a thing called Bandcamp came along. And yeah. the thing about Bandcamp, like I, I felt like I could see that coming, but I knew I'd never be able to recreate a Canadian version of it because it yeah, was just sure. not something that could be done by one person. There's so many elements in the back end of the way, you know, you can administer your account. You can, there's, there's some streaming elements, there's uh, graphical, uh, you know, manipulation that happens, you know, automatically in the back and all this kind of stuff. And I just, I, I saw that coming and I, I really thought to myself, ah, oh, I should really be, I wish I could do that, but they literally had venture capital and then, you know, and they are an amazing company and it's for the growth of music. What Bandcamp has done uh, is, is so amazing, but um, I'm saying it to you here because I, I really think you would know very well that um, I really wish that I could have created a Canadian Bandcamp, but it just mm-hmm. it was not in yeah. cards. I mean, this is the thing, like when I do, like I've done a few talks about the label or whatever, and like people ask for advice or whatever. And like, 
the only thing I've ever been able to come up with is like, it just, it's going to change. Like it changes every couple months or if yeah. you're lucky things are stable for a year or two, but like the answer last time is not going to be the answer next time. Like, so it has to like, that's also good in the sense of like, this is how it relates to like our lives as artists and as creative people. Cause you're sort of forced to like engage with it creatively all the time. Um, because there is, yeah, there's gonna, the project's gonna be different, but also like the technological environment is very likely gonna be different by the next time the rec- like the next record comes out, you know, or the way people want to hear music, like, um, the way you're gonna promote the record is gonna have to change every couple of years, you know, like we've been in this era where like, yeah, like social media was this totally dominant thing, and it was like terrible for like our mental health in a lot of ways oh, obviously yeah. Yeah. but like yeah. was an effective way to like tell people about music but then like they change how those platforms all work you know and like do they work as good as they did two three four or five years ago no absolutely not you know so it's like okay well we have to figure out a new way to like to even tell people about music you know and like is Spotify still going to be a music streamer in three or four years? Like, no, probably not. It's going to be about audiobooks and podcasts and TikTok and whatever else, you know? Like, it's like these things that's, they seem so big in the moment, you know, but they're going to change. And like, it's going to, there's going to be a different, different answer for how to do this. You, you know, to year. that point, do, do you remember the service eMusic? Yeah. There was like that was you know kind of like be, be almost somewhere between the beginning of uh, iTunes and all the things that you talked about now. But yeah. one thing I really remember was, you know, it, it allowed you to buy downloads at a sort of set reasonable rate. But I think they did it where it was uh, maybe like you would have to do a monthly subscription, and that allowed you one or two records. But when it first came out, there was debates about eMusic similar to Spotify, where like people complain about the Spotify payout rate being so low. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of basically owned by the major labels, but the idea that eMusic was this thing, and that they're not paying out enough. They're not paying it enough because you're using subscriptions and giveaways and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I still remember the day when Fugazi uh, or EMK, I guess, essentially put Discord onto eMusic, and that mm-hmm. sort of opened the floodgates. And but that's an example of that was a change. You know, I don't know, one of them was ten, fifteen years ago. Yeah. But when they when they came on, it it really changed the entire culture. It was almost like an acceptance on the indie side of this thing called digital music or downloads or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, and that's obviously such a, such a seismic kind of shift, but like, yeah, small things are changing all the time. And literally like the stuff's all beyond like our control is like whatever indie music people. Yes. Like just how, how these venture capitalists like write their algorithms, you know, to, inform people about stuff like it's we're just, like, we're just we're just trying to sell sausages to sappy basically right yeah totally <laughs> but like nurturing that like nurturing those actual relationships and those actual communities like that that's always going to work you know and it might be sappy fest this year it might be something else next year you know like it might be lonnie vanya like it might be whatever but like those sort of sites of actual connection or like connections with other bands that you play shows with or whatever like that stuff's real and that stuff's like the stuff that like though the effectiveness and the goodness and the like constructiveness of that like that doesn't change you know 
totally. Um, okay, so I'm I'm going to move move this to the sort of a final question, and I'll make it a two parter for you. Uh, sure. Which is just the the one that's you know as you've we've you know we've done this journey to uh, through uh, you know the earliest days of again why you started and then where you are now and you're still very much involved in music and a lot of things to come. Uh, the question is looking back, what's first what's what's something that stands out that you're really proud of uh, that you've done at, at any point over your career? And then, you know, a sort of a final thought that's almost like a, a, a life lesson, something that you've learned from music that you, you've brought into your life today and, or, and maybe you, you would pass on to somebody else. Hmm. Hmm. The big questions at the end. Yes. I like, I mean, I think this is a, probably a common, like, feeling with most artists like when you look at the stuff you've made like all you see are its flaws and mistakes you know yeah yeah um so like pride is a hard point to get to in, in terms of that i hear you, know? you but like i like whatever we we listen to Captain Copilot or if i listen to like the first Constantine's record like i can i can feel like a lot of affection for like those people, you know, like in that moment of yeah. like, like when I say those people, I'm, I'm including myself too. Like I was almost like a, like a, way back then, you know, different person or whatever, same yeah. person, but like yeah, a weird relationship to that. But like, that's not pride exactly. Like I think I've been involved in some decent music throughout, but it's also like as someone that's continuing to be creative, it's like, you there's also that thing of thinking like oh the next one's going to be the one that like solves all the mistakes i've ever made (laughs) in art you know and it's going to redeem every everything i'm embarrassed about like so it's the next one the next one and that's kind of what helps helps you keep doing it too um so yeah on on the artistic side it's actually kind of hard to like totally engage with that question as posed i feel pretty proud about like the years that I was director of Sappy Fest, I think we did something really cool. Like I say, we like, cause I'm including like the board of directors that was, that I worked with and like the volunteers and like the artists that I collaborated with really closely. Like, I think we did some really cool projects Some really cool things came out of it. Some really amazing, lucky circumstances happened. Some really amazing relationships were formed and I think we did cool, exciting, challenging, fun stuff through the pandemic even, you know, when we couldn't yeah. do like a, so I feel like, and now that I'm done with that organizational role, like I can, I do feel pretty separate and I can look back and be like, yeah, like that was cool. I feel good about that. I feel good about like how I did it. I feel good about where I left them as an organization. Like when I stepped in, there was debt and then I left them with like, in a significantly like more healthy financial state. I repaired relationships. I formed new relationships. Like, so I feel like good about that. You know, like I went into something that existed that I cared about and I think I did a good job with it and I left it in a good way, I think. So that can, that feeling edges closer to pride for sure. Um, and then I do, I mean, with the label, like, I feel like it's a cool thing that I've built and 
been involved with and like managed to keep going and again like measuring it by like the relationships and stuff that have come out of it and like the the I don't know environment I've I've helped create for like myself and fellow artists like to work in I think is good you know I feel good about it for the most part I wish I could do more for people I wish I could like you know make the whole world listen to their music you know but um I think it's mostly worked (laughs) (laughs) I don't know pride but I'm the word pride makes it like a very difficult question to to sort of answer I, I love the way you're kind of you're almost calling me on some of the words that i'm using like power and pride it's it's uh i i i, I appreciate oh, it i, I really appreciate think, it i do think power is a, is a difficult one and pride is just like psychologically like a complex one you know no it's good it's good you should you should you should was that both parts of the question or was that only part, part oh no no the, the, well the last one i like to just is just you know this is the kind of the you know just one way i put it is you're you know, you're talking to your 12 year old self, like what's, what's something you're envisioning this idea of maybe a life in music and that you would Mm -hmm. like to do it. If you could impart some wisdom on the, you know, 12 year old version of yourself, is there maybe having been through a lot of things, what, what is a a life lesson that you might tell that person? Yeah, just that it's going to be really hard and there's going to be a lot of struggles, but like it does have its very Mm -hmm. unique, and particular rewards as well, you know, and to do it for, do it for the love and do it for like, as a, do it as a way, like a way of living, you know, like a way of staying curious and a way of staying like active and, and creative and, and don't like think as little as you can about the outcomes that would be my sort of, and practice more. You should practice more 12 year old Steve. <laughs> you know, you should have gotten, you should have practiced the guitar a bit more. <laughs> Okay, that was the song Human Body, Human Brain by Stephen's band Spiderbite. It's Stephen along with the Romano brothers, Daniel and Ian, somebody that would be uh, great to get on this podcast in the future, hopefully. Uh, and earlier in the conversation, we heard the uh, an untitled track by Captain Copilot, which was uh, uh, the early embryonic track uh, from Stephen. So that was a great conversation, and... Um, it uh, we covered a lot of ground in terms of a lot of the interesting common things that uh, you know we we have in terms of both the music and the business side of things, and the fact that we're kind of from different areas musically, uh, but we have crisscrossed over the years, and so uh, just really great to get 
uh, get some of the stories together on this uh, on this Salad Days podcast, episode number nine, and uh, really appreciate it. And uh, as always, I would invite everyone to check out the show notes and be sure to um, see some of the projects that Stephen has going forward with both his label um, and uh, all the all the bands that are on that label and all the bands that he is is in and has been in. And I would also add again that the uh, the, the the song that we just heard there, Spider Bite, uh, the new that is the lead off single or lead lead track, and the album's coming out uh, in mid June. So again, great stuff. Great to see so much uh, vitality, and uh, really appreciate the conversation. So thanks again, Stephen, and thank you for tuning in. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe, like, and tell all your best music-loving friends about it. Today's episode was brought to you by Zunior.com and me, Lemonade Dave. I've done a lot of things in music over the years, but these days, I mostly make bottled lemonade by hand in Prince Edward County. I'm going to crack a cold one right now. But if you're ever in PEC, be sure to ask for it by name and tell them Dave sent you. Dave had it made, sitting pretty in the shade. Heaven gave him lemons, and he squeezed it into lemon. Drink without the trouble Of drinking drinks and shots and doubles He said, hark all, make it sparkle And he added stuff to make it bubble Lemonade, babe Like the sparkling lemonade If it's hot, I'll get a bottle it's not all. Get a bottle, that is.